Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Chapter 14, verse 6 of John may be one of the better known verses of the Bible, but also must be one of the most objectionable verses of the Bible. Objectionable to this age and this society in particular. For Jesus to say that he is the way, the life, and the truth is fairly arrogant. It's not politically right to speak in those kinds of terms today, especially about yourself. He should have said something like, some people know that I know something of the way to God. That one of the ways to life, that something of the truth that each of us can find, I have discovered. But it's not how he speaks. He just says, I am the way, the truth, the life. He is going to the Father, and he is the disciple's way to the Father. It's not just that he knows the way to the Father. It's not just that he can show them the way to the Father. He is the way to the Father. And if it's not enough that his claim is arrogant, then he also makes it exclusive. Not only is he the way to the Father, but he's also the only way to the Father. When he said he was the way, he didn't say he was a way. He meant he was the way, the one and only. He meant it with its full exclusive force, for he goes on to say, no one comes to the Father except through me. Buddhist, Muslim, Hindu, Marxist, atheist, agnostic, none of these will bring you to the Father. Only through me. There is no other way but Jesus. Offensive, objectionable, is how many people would view the text of John 14.6. It's so offensive to other people, isn't it? For it is saying they are wrong. It is so objectionable to the relativists who want to say all roads lead to the same truth ultimately. It says, there is one way and I am it. All other ways are effectively false. Well, let's look at this little text in its context. Over the past couple of years, I've been wending through John's Gospel on Sunday mornings here looking at key texts in each of the chapters. And that's why we've come to chapter 14 and verse 6 today. But let's recall where we're up to in the Gospel, because I've got to confess that every time I open it up, I forget where we're up to. So let's go back and look where we're up to and see the structure of John's Gospel. There are four big sections to John's Gospel that we've pointed to. The first section is very small, the introduction of chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, where the great themes of the gospel are laid out. Then in chapter 1, 19, all the way through to chapter 12, verse 50, we have the public ministry of Jesus. And he travels around Palestine. He goes to Judea, he goes back up to Galilee, he works miracles, he heals people, he preaches, he speaks in synagogues and in the temple area. You meet Jesus in public. But then from chapter 13 to 17, 
Jesus withdraws into the upper room just with his disciples. And so you get 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. All these chapters are the teaching on the night that he was betrayed, are the teaching to his own inner group of disciples just before his death about what is to take place. The fourth section, chapters 18 to 21, recount for us the death and resurrection of Jesus. So where we were last year at the end of chapter 12 and the beginning of chapter 13 was a great turning point of the whole gospel. Indeed, the, the hinge, the place where the door actually turns, you find in chapter 12, verse 23. The whole world seems to have gone to Jesus and now some Greeks come to Jesus and verse 23, Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And he speaks of it in terms of verse 31 of chapter 12, now is the time for the judgment of the world. Now will the prince of the world be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will all draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. When the public ministry reaches the stage that all the world has heard of him, that the Greeks are now coming to him, now is the time for the crucifixion. Now he comes to the point for which he had been sent in the first place. So chapter 13, verse 1, it was just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to his Father. Having loved his who were own in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. And so over these chapters, just with the disciples, he is explaining his death. He is explaining what is about to happen in his execution. He washes his disciples' feet in verses 1 to 17, setting them the great example of love. He predicts his betrayal in verses 18 to 30 and sends Judas out on his terrible task. And then he predicts his departure, chapter 13, 31, 13, 31. When he was gone, Jesus said, that is when Judas had gone, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My little children, I will be with you only a little longer. You look for me just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now where I am going, you cannot come. This is where we're up to in the Gospel. He is now talking about his departure and its implications for the disciples who are going to be left behind. They've followed him. They've given up their trade, their business, their families. They've followed him all the way to Jerusalem. And now he is saying, I'm about to leave you. This is what's going to happen now. I'm about to leave you. It was fairly distressing news for them. But notice the theological context that we're in. Jesus is going to the glory of the cross. The Son of Man is to be glorified. The Son of Man is to be lifted up into the clouds, fulfilling Daniel chapter 7, so as to bring glory to his Father. In his going, he will bring glory to his Father, just as he will be glorified. You see it in chapter 12, where he describes it in chapter 12, verse 27, Now is my heart troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it's for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, 
glorify your name. And a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Or you see it in chapter 13, verse 31. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Now is the great moment for the glorification of God. And that's what's being discussed in our passage today, chapter 14. Notice verse 13, 14, 13. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. Glory has been one of the themes all the way through John's Gospel, right back from the little introduction section. Chapter 1, verse 14, The Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only of the Father, full of grace and truth. Glory means splendor, means reputation, means the shining magnificence of God. What is the glory of God? Remember, it's not his army although he has armies. It is not his wealth, though he has all the wealth there is. It is not even his creation, though he made it all himself. The glory of God is his character, is his goodness. In particular, the fact that he is truthful, faithful, reliable. The fact that he is loving, merciful, gracious. We beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only of the Father, full of grace and truth. For when you see the grace and truth of Jesus, you see the grace and truth of his Father. When you see Jesus in his glory, you see the Father in his glory. When Jesus acts in graciousness and truthfulness, he acts according to his very character and nature, the character and nature of his Father. You see the glory of God. And where in particular do you see the glory of God, his graciousness, his faithfulness, but in the death of his one and only Son on our behalf, fulfilling his promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, faithful even unto death, and gracious, loving, merciful, generous to the enemies of God and the sinners of this world, you and me. It is in the death of Jesus in particular that you see the glory of God. But at this point in time, this point in history that the disciples were in, they didn't understand that. They were seeing it with their eyes, but they were not seeing it with their minds. They were not really responding to it with their hearts because they didn't understand what they were seeing. What they were seeing was their leader talking about the fact that he was about to be executed. You don't think that is the glory of God. You think that's a dud. You think that's a failure. You think, I've made a mistake, or he's made a mistake. He's not going to be killed. He's going to win. I mean, you support your own leader to be the winner. That's what you expect. And you see Pat Rafter go down last night. The crowd didn't believe it. They kept on cheering for him at every moment. It was as clear as a bell he was going to lose. Only one man on the court was sweating. And it wasn't the winner. It was quite clear who was losing, but the crowd was urging him on, willing him on, and unbelieving that he was ever going to lose. Did you watch the cricket? It's the same kind of problem. Absolutely sure we were going to win, weren't you? In fact, our cricketers were too. They just packed up. 20 runs short. They just decided they'd had enough for the evening and went for a little walk. You know how to support the winner. 
the idea that you're not going to win at all, that there's no chance of winning at all, that you start to see the wickets tumble, you say, I think I'll turn it off now. I don't want to watch this debacle. These people have thrown their total lot in with this man. And he was saying, about to be killed, friends. The enemies are going to destroy me. And there you will see the glory of God. And they say, no, there we see the victory of evil. We don't see the glory of God there. We see the victory of evil. The good man destroyed. How's that the glory of God? See, they don't understand what is happening. And anyway, what's going to happen to me? I mean, if they kill you, they'll be after us next, won't they? And what are we going to do? You've spent three years training us up to be fishermen and tax collectors. We may as well go back home. I mean, what has it all been about? What's the point? What's the purpose? And so... Jesus reassures them with these comforting words. Chapter 14, 1, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust God, trust also in me. That's what chapter 14 is about. Look at chapter 14, 27, which we'll be looking at next week. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. You only say to people, don't be afraid, when there's good reason to be afraid, don't you? As soon as somebody starts saying, don't worry, don't worry, you know there's good reason to be worried. And they never say it to you when you're winning. They never say it to you when everything's going well. They always say those kinds of things when things are going badly, aren't they? And here is Jesus speaking to them these words of comfort. Firstly, trust. Go on trusting God. Go on trusting me. God is trustworthy and is his son, so is Jesus. So in the face of this impending disaster, trust God, trust also in me. Because of the corny insincerity and untrustworthiness of our own human leaders, we all now have cynical suspicion upon anybody who says, just trust me. That, that is something we won't come at at all. But God is trustworthy. Jesus, his son, is trustworthy, so trust him, trust in God in this situation. For Jesus goes on to explain, what I'm doing is I'm going to prepare a place for you. See, why is he going? Where is he going? What is he going for? That, what, what is it all about that he is returning to us? Verses 2 and 3, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back to take you to be with me. So you may also be where I am. Oh, I'm dying. Yes, I'm going to be executed. Yes, I'm going to be betrayed. Yes, I'm going to, But I'm going to prepare a place for you. There is a room in God's house for you. And Jesus' death is his way of preparing that room for you. And he's not going to go and prepare a room for you without coming back to take you to the room. He's not deserting. He is going to prepare the way for you. So chapter 14, verse 3, you know the way there to your room in my father's house. Well, Thomas doesn't get it. You don't know where you're going, and I don't know how you're getting there, and I don't know what the way is. What is this way that you're talking about? It's all very well you telling me I know the way. I don't know the way. He hasn't been listening to what Jesus has just said. 
Jesus said, I am going to prepare a place for you and I am coming back to take you to the place. So what is the way? Jesus is the way. He is the one who is going there, preparing it, coming back, taking you there. He's just told them, I am the way, but they haven't, as expressed in Thomas, and I'm sure he's only speaking on behalf of the others, understood it. That the way is Jesus, who goes in his death and returns by his resurrection and second coming to take them to the place he has prepared for them. For us, it's simple. It's simple because we live this side of the cross. It's simple for us, but for them in their anxiety, for them before the events, for them without the Holy Spirit having been given to them to understand the scriptures, it was bewildering. What's this going away? What's this coming back? What's this preparing a place? What kind of place? Where? What kind of room is he talking about? Who is his father in the end? And how do I get to where he thinks I've got to get to? It was all bewildering. And so our text, I am the way, the way to the Father, just as he is the truth and the life. If you're going to come to God, to my Father, to the Father, then I am dying to get you there. I am returning to bring you there. I am the way to your Father, who is the Father. In fact, the only way to the Father, for no one else can die for your sins. Buddha didn't. Muhammad couldn't, Confucius can't, nobody else can die for your sins, but that is what Jesus did, that we might come to the Father. I am the one and only way to the Father. To know me is to know him. And my departure, my death, will change you so that from now on you will know him, even as you have known me. Yet the troubled hearts are still confused. And this time it's, it's Philip who expresses the confusion in verse 8. Well, Lord, show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us. They haven't got it yet. If they've seen the Son in his glory, then they've seen the Father. Because the Son's glory is not something different to the Father's glory. It is the glory of the one and only of the Father, full in grace and truth. But you must see Jesus, uh, not just the physical body. That's not where the grace and truth is seen, in the body. In fact, the Jesus as a body is never described for us. We don't know if he was tall or short or fat or thin or brown. I suspect he, was, he, he looked Jewish. That's about the only thing that I can be sure of. And I think if there's anything unusual, like albino Jew, it would have been mentioned. I presume he just looked like every other kind of person. Look, there's nothing about Jesus' physical body. It was a real physical body, but that's not where you see the glory. That's not where you see the one and only of the Father. That was not the characteristic that made you see, ah, that is just the chip off the old block. That is just the Father himself. You see that in his crucifixion, in his laying down his life for the sins of the people. You see it in his faithfulness even unto death. You see it in his grace and love and generosity by which we are forgiven at the price of his own life. 
But when you see Jesus in his glory, in his glorious work of grace and truth, in his glorious works, when you see Jesus in his glory, then you see God the Father himself. And so Jesus points to his words. And he says, they're not my words, but they're my Father's work. Notice chapter 14, verse 10. There's a little twists and turns here I want to draw your attention to. Don't you believe that I'm in the Father? The Father is in me. The words I say to you are not my, just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. We expect him to be saying, who is speaking his words. But the words of Jesus are the works of God. It's important because as it goes on here, the, the translators of the New International Version haven't understood it. For they then change the word works of God into the word miracles, which isn't there in the Greek at all. But more of that in a moment. See, Jesus was not doing his own thing. Jesus was not independent of his Father. The Father was in Jesus and Jesus was in the Father. So trust in Jesus is to trust the Father and to trust the Father is to trust Jesus. And so believe in the works of the Father. At that point, the NIV puts in believe in the miracles of the Father. But the word miracles is not there in the Greek text. The word is believe in the works of the Father. I'm sorry to tell you this because I don't like casting doubt on our translators. But this is one of the places where the NIV has got it as bad as it can get it. It really distorts the whole meaning of the passage to put the word miracles in there. I'll show you why in a moment, because it's got to do with a little bit at the end of our section today. Believe in the works. Believe all that Jesus does, all that Jesus says, which includes miracles. I'm not denying them for a moment, and they're part of the works, but it's not just believe in the miracles, because the whole of John's Gospel, people have believed in the miracles, and their belief has been false belief. They are the true unbelievers, the ones who just believed in the miracles. It's believe in the whole works of God that you see in the person of Jesus and hear in his words. All that Jesus does, all that Jesus says, all that Jesus acts, all his words, all his works, his ministry, his life and his death are all an expression of the Father, are all displaying the Father, are all an exhibition of the Father in his glory. Why is it so important to cross out the word miracles and replace it with the word works? Well, because notice verse 12. I'll tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing and he will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. If you put miracles in verse 11, you get a promise in verse 12 that Christians are going to do greater miracles. But if you're talking about the works of God, then you're saying that Christians are going to do greater works. That in itself is an extraordinary promise. It's a pretty big thing. You're going to do greater works than Jesus. I mean, that's a pretty big statement, isn't it? But it's not greater miracles than Jesus. How can you do greater miracles than Jesus? There's a thought for you, isn't it? And what are they? And so people have hung on to verses 12 and 13 and 14, demanding responses to prayers and having expectations as to how God will answer prayer, which is beyond what Jesus is saying because of putting the word miracles back there in verse 11. We are going to do the work of God. Indeed, greater works are now going to be able to be done. Why now are they going to be done? Why is it that the disciples 
are going to be able to do greater works than Jesus was doing? The answer is there for us in verse 12, 13. I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. You see, prior to Jesus going to the Father, we were outside the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God had not been established on earth. The kingdom of God had not come. Prior to Jesus dying on the cross and paying for the sins of the world, the glory of God in the Son had not been displayed and not put into effect. But once he does that, then we share in his work and we will do what even he was not doing prior to his death, bringing glory to the Father through the Son as we preach the Christ crucified to the world. And so ask, And Jesus will be able to do it because Jesus has now paid the penalty for us so that we are able to come into the presence of God the Father and ask of anything of him. And he will give it to us so that God will be glorified. The Father of the Son will be glorified by giving us what we ask in his name. So ask of Jesus and so that our prayers are going to be heard and answered Prayers that will glorify God. The great prayer that glorifies God is the prayer that Jesus taught. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your name be held holy around the world. Your kingdom come. Your will be done not just in heaven but be done on earth. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. Lead us not to temptation. All those things come true because Jesus died and rose again. Jesus has come to the Father. When Jesus comes to the Father, having paid the penalty for the sins of the world and rising up to be in his Father's home, preparing a place for us, then God's kingdom is come. Then God's name is finally hallowed in places as far away as Australia that they weren't even thinking of then. Then God's will starts to be done in my life and in your life in a way that was never known before. Greater things are happening. Now that Jesus has died, he goes to prepare a place for us and will return to take us to that place. What an encouragement to prayer. For in prayer, friends, we bring glory to God the Father through the glorious Son who has died on the cross for us. Well, let's go back to our text, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Is it an objectionable text or is it a reassuring text? Well, you all expect me to say reassuring, don't you? And I want to say it's not objectionable and reassuring is not the right word either. It's only objectionable to the devil's people to those who are liars and murderers like their father, the devil, who was a liar and a murderer, to those people who do not want to live by truth and who do not want life, and go so far as to deny that there can be any truth or that there will be eternal life. I mean, theoretically, hypothetically, there could be a thousand ways to God, or there could be ten, or three, or one, or any number, couldn't there? But to take offence at the answer that there is one way 
and I am it. Because it is saying there is one way, is of course to reveal your antagonistic prejudice. If there is one way, there is one way. Why can't there be one way? Why is it impossible for God to have one way to him and only one way? And if God has given his one and only son to die on the cross for the penalty of the sins of the world, why should there be another way? If there was another way, why did God sacrifice his only son? There could be no other way. For if there was any other conceivable way, it would be less expensive to God than that way and he would have opened it up for us. There is only one way. Of course, there could only be one way for sinful people to come to the Father. It is by the sacrifice of his Son. It is the only way. And therefore, you would think I'd be saying it's not so much objectionable as reassuring. Well, it is reassuring to know that Jesus is the way and that we can come to the Father and that his death is not a failure but a victory. It was reassuring to them. But this text is more than reassuring. It's challenging, isn't it? I don't think I want objectionable. I don't think we're reassuring. I think it's challenging. It challenges us firstly as to whether we have come to God by him. For there is no other way to the Father except by him. If you think you can come to the Father any other way, you are mistaken. There is no other way. No one else was good enough to pay the price for sin. There is no other way than through the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on your behalf. You may not like that. You may want to try and climb the mountain your own way. You may want to go and prepare your own room your own way. But God is declaring there is no other way. No one else is acceptable to him than his own son, for only his own son was sinless. And we are acceptable to him only inasmuch as we are in his son, who became sin for us, who took our sin upon himself, so as to open up the way for us to enter into the presence of God. There is no other way. Have you come to God this way? For if you have come any other way, you are not there. And if you refuse to come because you want some other way, then that is pig-headed obstinacy. You are telling God, God's business. Do not listen to the evil one any longer. Come by Jesus. But secondly, it's challenging because if you have come, Whether we are now doing the greater works of which... It challenges us to whether we are doing the greater works of which Jesus speaks. For if we have come to the Father through the Son, then we have come to bring glory to the Father, as Jesus brought glory to the Father. But because Jesus has brought glory to the Father through his death and resurrection, we can bring even greater glory to the Father. As we ask of him anything in the name of Jesus, he grants it to us. For as we ask, we give glory to God. That is, I ask in order to receive, but I also ask in order to bring glory to God. For whenever I pray to God, I am declaring God is in control of the world. God is listening to me. Jesus has died for me and opened up the way that I can pray to God. God is concerned about my concerns. God is able to give me the things that I am asking for. 
Every time I approach God in prayer through the death of Jesus, I am bringing glory to God because I'm declaring that, God, you are loving and you are faithful. You are gracious. You are truthful. The very activity of prayer brings glory to God. What a motivation it should be for us to be more prayerful. I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me for your salvation. Can I challenge you to come to God through him? And if you are saved having come through him, can I encourage you for your prayers? Keep coming to God through him that the Father may be brought glory in the Son. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness and for your love that we see in your Son and in his death. And we pray, Father, that each one of us may come to you through him. And having come to you through him, that we might come over and again in our prayer, that we might bring glory to you through our Lord Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive them who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The kingdom, the power and the glory are yours, now and forever.